That brings us to the bronze laver or the bronze wash basin of chapter 30, verse 17. This is the second thing that you would encounter in the courtyard. So you sacrifice on the altar, which removes your guilt, and then you go to the wash basin, and you dip your hands into the wash basin, and you would wash your hands, your legs, your arms, and your feet, and your face, and your neck. And now remember, this isn't taking a bath. It's not, it's not meant to lather up with dove soap and get yourself clean. The point is symbolic cleansing. This would be our equivalent of a baptism. This is what cleanses you from the defilement of sin. This is what cleanses you from the defilement of sin. The washings. And so the, all, the, the sacrifice of Christ dying declares you not guilty. But the blood and the water that pours out of your side is what cleanses you of your sins. And so it's a two-step process, which means the only way you can be cleansed is if you're first declared not guilty. Now, for us, the cross kind of does it all, but technically the death is removal of guilt, and the Holy Spirit that comes later is the removal of defilement. So that now, when you commit a sin, you don't have to re-crucify Christ all over again because you've already been declared not guilty and not condemned for every sin that you've ever committed and every sin that you ever will commit because his sacrifice, unlike an animal, is an eternal sacrifice. So just like he was and is and is to come, his sacrifice was and is and is to come. Therefore, it takes care of every sin that you've ever committed and will commit. And so that removes your guilt. But the fact is you still continue to sin and that ruins your relationship with God, which means you have to be cleansed on a regular basis, which is your confession. It's constantly going to God through confession and the Holy Spirit then continually cleanses you. And then it starts this process of sanctification. So the bronze altar is like our justification. We're declared right before God, but that doesn't mean we're truly righteous. Where the bronze laver or wash basin is your sanctification, where now through submission to the Holy Spirit, you're being cleansed so that the hope is that I'm more righteous this year than I was last year as we go through this continual process. And so it's bronze too because it's judgment. It's removing the judgment, cleansing you of it. So this is getting the spot out of your clothes for Macbeth or your hands. Okay, You might be declared not guilty, but you still have that blood stain on you. Now, yes? So the mikvah would be the same thing. Exactly. So the Jews then would have their own local mikvahs in a village, or a wealthy person would have their own mikvah. And the mikvah was a hole in the ground, or carved out of stone, and you would walk down into it, and you would dunk yourself in. Now, when we get to the temple, you have to do this before you even enter the temple, and then you have to do it again once you enter the temple. And then you would walk out different steps because the steps you walked in is defiled with your dirty, sinful feet. And then now that you're cleansed, you walk out different steps. That, and, then, and sometimes they're side by side and sometimes it's on the other side. And so you just kind of go in. What does that sound like? That sounds like our baptism. So when John the baptizer comes along, he's not inventing a brand new idea. It's not like he's like comes up with this really cool baptism and everybody's like, oh, that's the beginning of baptism. God prescribed it already. It's already in the Bible. When we get to Leviticus, he's going to tell them about the mikvah. This is something they had to do continuously all the time. What John does is completely different. 
John is offering a once and only mikvah washing, saying that something is going to happen where we only have to go through the mikvah once to cleanse our sins. And so where normally it also represented repentance, but it also represented being part of the community. And so John is saying, repent for the kingdom of God is here, meaning the only way you can get to the kingdom of God is by being cleansed and repenting. But at the same time, this is going to be your initiation, your entrance into the community. But this kingdom of God is going to be unlike any other kingdom of God, where you had to continually offer sacrifice and continually get washed. This kingdom is going to provide one washing, one washing only. And that's why when Jesus then comes along and he's washing the feet and, and Peter's like, then wash all of me. And he's like, no, you've already been baptized under John to enter the community. Now you only have to wash what you've defiled since then. And that's the idea of sanctification. And so John, this is not a new idea with John. This is John, John just kind of tweaking it a little bit because everything is changing now. And so that's the wash basin. So Christ fulfills this mostly through the Holy Spirit. Mostly through the Holy Spirit. So that brings us to the oil and incense. Once again, God goes back to the oil and the incense. He gives ingredients in chapter 30, verse 22, for how they are to do the incense and all that kind of stuff. And unless you're going to build your own tabernacle, a lot of that doesn't really apply to us. But mostly just to know what the incense and the oil is for. Now, kind of one last overview in the tabernacle since God kind of just jumps around. Okay, just as a refresher. So basically, you're an Israelite. You come to this tent, this courtyard. The courtyard is around 150 feet by 75 feet in size. There's only one gate on the eastern side. And remember, moving westward is moving closer to the Garden of Eden. Moving eastward is walking away from the Garden of Eden. You enter the, the, the gate. There's only two ways you can enter the gate. What are they? You're part of the Abrahamic covenant, and you have an animal sacrifice. The first thing you would come to is the altar. Now, off to the right side, you would cut your animal up. The priest would inspect it. This is what we'll talk about Leviticus. But he inspect it for imperfections and defilement. And then the priest and you would cut the animal up. And depending on what sacrifice you're offering, you offer different parts in this. It would burn up. The smoke would go up in the air. You would then go to the wash basin, and you would wash yourself. And this entire time, you're probably singing hymns and songs and celebrating. And then you would leave. And that's all you would do. Now, the priests, though, they would be allowed to go into the holy place where they would continue to provide the light of God, which represents the presence of God. And they would restock the table, show bread with the bread, which represents God's provision, inviting you to eat with him. And then they would restock the altar of incense for the prayers. And then once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and pour the blood of a goat on the atonement lid that covers the Ark of the Covenant. And so that's basically the, the gist of the tabernacle. How, how often would they come? Ah, good question. When we get to Leviticus, we'll talk about that more, but God never tells them how often. Because it's just like so many people. Whenever I would read this, I would think it must be... Well, remember... Your guilty conscience determines how often you go. So really, how often do you go? That's the one thing. God is really detailed on a lot of things, but the one detail he leaves out is how often. Now, the priests were required to offer a burnt offering every morning and every evening to kind of open 
and close the sacrifices. But how many people showed up that day had everything to do with how much they love God. So the more guilty you feel about sin, you're probably going to be there a lot. And the same thing with us. How often do you pray and repent of your sins? It all depends on how much you love God, how close you are to God, how aware of the Holy Spirit's conviction you are. Some people pray and are repenting a lot, and some people go maybe once a week or whatever. And so that really is the one thing that God did not command of how often. It really just had to do with how much your sin bothered you. And so I'm sure as the people become more and more sinful, they show up less and less and less. And as the people are more righteous and after revivals, there's a lot more people there. And so, yeah, as the people grow, they're going to spread these out. It's going to take a lot longer to get in. Of course, things are going to get bigger, though, too. By the time we get to Solomon, we're going to have a giant altar and multiple wash basins and that kind of stuff. So, so yeah, that's the one thing that he doesn't prescribe. Yes. In the in this culture, it was only the the men did the sacrificing. No, the whole family would come. The men would be the only ones who would be offering the animal, but your entire family would be standing there with you. Now, this makes two very important points. One, that's a lot of blood, a lot of death, a lot of work, a lot of rituals just to get into this gate. And it's even more to get into this and even more to get into that. What is God trying to communicate? Your sin has created a barrier between you and God. There's only one way in to God, and it's only through a blood sacrifice. And this is a lot of work. See, we're not, we don't have to do animal sacrifices anymore, that kind of stuff. But one of the disadvantages of not having that is this lesson isn't being pounded in our head on a daily basis. The Bible never says that making animal sacrifices is wrong to do that anymore. It just says beware that that's not going to do anything, that you have a better sacrifice. But at the same time, not going through this process has robbed us from a very powerful, visual, violent, horrific experience that can communicate a lot to us about what our sin is. And we've missed out on that. Now, granted, I don't want to go back pre-Christ, but God, it's not like God's like, well, that was a horrible plan. Let's go with Christ now. Like, this is still a beautiful picture. This is still a very powerful lesson. This is still a God communicating to us. So yes, in some sense, I said, don't you dare go back to animal sacrifices because it's an incredible insult to the eternal sacrifice of Christ. But at the same time, this is still God's idea and God's plan to teach a powerful lesson to us that we're missing out on when we don't read all these details and when we don't do it physically for real. And we'll talk about that more when we get to Leviticus, but remember that what God is trying is you are separated from God because of your sin. And this is a lot of work and it's a lot of death and a lot of blood. But the second point that this tabernacle makes is there are doors and gates. If he really wanted to keep you out, there would be no gate. There'd be no altar. There'd be no wash basin. And there'd be there'd just be this room with no doors. But by the fact that there is a gate and he does allow an animal sacrifice to get you in, he's communicating to you that despite your sin, he still loves you so much, there is a way in. And then when Christ comes, he's just going to tear 
those gates wide open for you. Because here's what's really cool. When we get to Ezekiel, Ezekiel is going to envision a temple where there are multiple gates on all sides of it, and the walls of the courtyard are really small that you can step in. So you can, the walls are like really low, and the gates are huge, and there's multiple gates. And the whole point is that when Christ comes, there's going to be access to everybody from all nations and all tribes. But it's a lot more complicated than that, but that's, oh, that's the prophets. So that's what this is communicating. Now, here's the other thing that's cool. There's the Garden of Eden. Now, I don't know what the Garden of Eden looks like. This is all metaphorical. The Garden of Eden had some very important things in it. Now, remember, there was a gate in the east of the Garden of Eden, and it faced east. In the garden, there were four very important things that God highlighted. One, there was the presence of God. Don't know what he looked like at that point. There was the tree of life. There was the fruit of the garden, and there was the image of God, humans. These are four things that God placed in the Garden of Eden. And so basically you have humans and God dwelling with each other. And because you have that relationship, God is providing you life and all your needs are being met through the, through the fruit. That's the picture he paints. Once you commit sin, you're kicked out. And what guards you from entering? The cherubim. Okay? So we lose access to the garden. So what does God do? He has them rebuild the garden, so speak. And so what does he do? He puts the Ark of the Covenant inside the tabernacle. Then he creates a tree, which is the lampstand, because it has almonds carved into it and all that kind of stuff. And then he provides bread and olive oil, which is the fruit that sustains them. And then through the priest, he allows only a select few who dedicate themselves to an extra level of holiness to enter in and dwell with them. And chooses them. So he's kind of rebuilding this Garden of Eden. But then he does something else that's cool. Then he brings them to Israel, and Israel just happens to have these two bodies of water in the east. So they kind of form pillars and a gate that's in the east. And then in there, he places the tabernacle, which is the presence of God, and he provides them a land flowing with milk and honey. And there's a lot of times that fruit and trees show up over and over and over again as a symbol of God. And then Israel becomes the image of God in this land. And what's very interesting, how does everybody enter and leave the land? If you've gone through Genesis, Jacob leaves the land through here and he encounters angels. And then when he comes back from Laban, he comes back through here and encounters angels. And then when we have Joshua bringing them in, they come in this way. And who does Joshua meet right before he goes through? the captain of God's army, an angel. Okay, and so then when Ezekiel leaves, or sorry, Elijah leaves, they encounter angels. And when Elijah comes back, he encounters angels. And then when all of Israel is taken out and kicked out of the land, they go out through this way, but they don't encounter angels because Ezekiel gave them a vision of God and the angels leaving the land. And so God basically creates the land of Israel to be like the Garden of Eden as well. And the only time Israel ever goes in and out of the land in a theological sense is through that gate in the east. And every time they do, they encounter angels. And so God is painting this picture so that when we get to the book of Revelation, we're told that the tabernacle of God comes down, but he also calls the tabernacle Jerusalem, and he also calls it Israel, and he talks about it like it's a garden. 
And the idea is that he's collapsing all these things together because the kingdom of God has finally come down to earth. And so this is an intentional image that God is trying to create all throughout the Bible of what God is trying to do. He's building a little microcosm, the tabernacle of the Garden of Eden. And his desire is that if Israel is obedient, then that garden will get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then Ezekiel has a vision of this garden getting so big that it covers the entire earth. And even the Dead Sea, which has no life, turns into this vibrant, life-giving body of water when the river flows into it. And so that's God's dream one day, is that we start with a little tent that's 45 feet by 15 feet, but if we are obedient, it's supposed to expand. But we never could do it until Christ becomes Israel and he begins to expand it through the church. And so this is what God is trying to communicate here. Then he commands the willing artisans. Two artists, Bezalel, which means in the shadow of God, chapter 31, verse 1, and that was Miriam's grandson. So it's the grandnephew of Moses. And then Ohalib, and I never can say that one, which means the father is my tent. And God commands these two artists that are incredibly gifted in metalworking and fabrics, and he puts his Holy Spirit upon them to give them the gifting. So he takes their natural talents and then combines it with the gifting of the Holy Spirit to craft all these metal images that we've talked about, the, the, the table of showbread and the altar of incense. And basically he commands them to have a special access and to craft this. And so this gives an incredible significance to the artists. And then once again in chapter 31, God commands that they focus on the Sabbath. Because remember, the Sabbath is the sign of the Mosaic Covenant as well as their access into the tabernacle. Because this is the day. Because you have to realize the Sabbath is a unique thing. Because basically the Sabbath is a time, the tabernacle is a place, and the pillar of fire is a physical thing. So the tabernacle is where Israel encounters God in space, time, and matter. It's a specific space at a specific time that they can encounter the physical presence of God. This is their only link to God. And so the Sabbath becomes a very important thing because in a culture where you're working all the time, this is the only time that they're going to encounter God in space, time, and matter without the Holy Spirit. And so God keeps repeating the Sabbath over and over and over again. 